This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Uh, Will Power is on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. Uh, Will is uh, sort of become the Tommy Newsom to Ian Robertson's Doc Severinsen. Where is uh, Ian tonight, Will? Do we know? We, he, just a shrug on the other side of the glass. We don't know where Ian Robertson, the mystery man, is, but, Will, we're glad to have you here. Doc Severinsen and Tommy Newsom. There's a, a, uh, a reference lost on the younger generation. <laughs> anyway, uh, Albert Vinzel, of course, is uh, with us. My story producer, Albert, is, uh, as always, running our HOA, our Hangout on Air. And incidentally, if you'd like to partake, watch this radio program live stream on YouTube. It's real simple. Uh, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, T at Richard Serrett. Please follow and say hello. Uh, but anyway, if you go to the top or near the top of the feed, you'll see a tweet containing the capital letters HOA. And that's a link. Just click on it, and then you're in, and you're watching the radio program on YouTube. How cool is that? Uh, in uh, Oh, Albert, get ready to play What's in the Box. Let the people on the, uh, the Hangout see. There's our, uh, I've got a fancy new box. It's an old box, actually, an old cigar box. Uh, Albert, my story producer, um, is studying or has uh, been a student of remote viewing for many years. He fancies himself a young Ingo Swan. And uh, so last week we started a little experiment, and we thought we'd kick off the show again tonight uh, with a segment called What's in the Box? And Albert will use his remote viewing skills, and we'll check in with uh, Albert a little bit later uh, to see if he can uh, use his remote viewing skills to determine what's in the box. Let me just, Albert, uh, are you feeling confident tonight? Well, I'll give it a shot. It's the same procedure as as every time, just be still, relax, and internal board it. If if the shape takes form, then that's it. And just, all right. just call it. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you to the bottom of the hour. All right. So good <laughs> luck with that. What's in the box? Uh, in just a few moments, we'll be joined by Morgan Reynolds, a former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. He also served as the director of the Criminal Justice Center, and uh, he's a senior fellow 
or was a senior fellow at the National Center for Policy Analysis uh, down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, His website is nomoregames.net, and he's standing by uh, to share his in-depth knowledge on the boom-bust cycle, uh, phony recovery, central bank madness, money printing, wealth inequality, and other things. Um, All right. Please visit the website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and once there, you can go in a number of different directions. Uh, there's a tab for my, my television program, The Conspiracy Show. Uh, there's also a tab for this, for this radio program, which is also called The Conspiracy Show. And uh, that's where you can find out all the info on past guests, book titles, websites, etc. And take a moment on the radio page uh, to join, become a member. It's quick, easy, and free. There's a blue member button. Just click on that, follow the directions, and uh, once you're a member, that gains you access to member-only uh, areas. Uh, and there's also a live events page, so I encourage you to check out my uh, next live event, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses, featuring rock historian R. Gary Patterson. And that's Saturday, October the 16th. Sorry, the 15th. Let me do that again. Saturday, October the 15th. That's at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium. Special Skype appearances by Peggy Sue Guerin. Of course, the muse for Buddy Holly. Uh, Bill Harry, lifelong friend of the Beatles and the publisher of the legendary Mercy Beat magazine. And uh, bass guitarist for 10 years after Leo Lyons. So Gary Patterson live on stage and then special Skype appearances by the aforementioned. Take a walk on the dark side. Saturday, October the 15th. Go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Hope to see you there. Uh, Next week on the program, Stanton Friedman, the granddaddy of ufology, Stanton Friedman and his co-author Kathleen Marden, uh, to talk about their brand new book, Fact, Fiction, and UFOs. And Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our resident paranormal investigator, will also be along. That's next week on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, I I was mentioning earlier, you know, you wouldn't know it, based upon the uh, current news cycle, particularly in the United States, all this ridiculous talk of... Uh, a fat shaming, a former Miss Universe uh, contestant, a winner. Uh, but for Americans, all the polls indicate the number one issue remains the economy. And uh, if we're in a recovery, as uh, a lot of the talking heads on Wall Street, a lot of the talking heads in the MSM maintain, uh, do you remember in the last presidential uh, debo- uh, debate, um, the, uh, the moderator uh, was telling us that everything is great. Everything is great. But if this is a recovery, it is, by every measurable standard, the most sluggish recovery in living memory since the Great Depression. And I don't know too many people outside uh, Wall Street and the MSM who believe that uh, the United States is in a recovery, or even in here in Canada, quite frankly. And it's not just grim in the United States. Everywhere, China, Japan, Europe has had a bad case of the slows. Mexico's economy has hit the skids. The UK uh, post-Brexit economy is still, is still trying to get up on its legs. Uh, in the United States, I guess the consumer is sort of keeping this merry-go-round spinning. And some doomsayers are predicting the, the bubble, I should say bubbles, because there are a number of credit debt bubbles They're maintaining they are bound to burst before the end of this year. Perhaps that will be the October surprise. How bad is it? Well, let's get Morgan Reynolds in here to explain. Morgan Reynolds is a professor emeritus, economics, Texas A&M University, College Station, Texas. He's a former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor and also 
served as the director of the Criminal Justice Center and senior fellow at the National Center for Policy Analysis, headquartered in Dallas, Texas. He is the author or co-author of six books, including Public Expenditure, Taxes and the Distribution of Income, Power and Privilege, Labor Unions in America, Crime by Choice, and Economics of Labor. He's published over 50 articles in, in, uh, in referred academic journals, including the American Economic Review, Journal of Political Economy, and Journal of Labor Research. He's authored or co-authored dozens of policy studies for organizations like the Joint Economic Committee, Committee of the United States Congress and the National Center for Policy Analysis. He's written dozens of op-eds for Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, Investors Business Daily, Fortune, National Review, Dallas Morning News, Houston Chronicle, The Washington Times, LouRockwell.com, and other popular outlets. Morgan Reynolds, great to have you back on The Conspiracy Show. It's been too long. How are you? Hey, very good. I'm I'm, uh, pleased to be back and uh, love your show. Thank you, Morgan. i got to ask you a favor. It sounds like we're getting some echo, so can you turn down the sound on your computer? Just mute your computer, and we'll hear you through the telephone. Yeah, I'm uh, trying to do this. and uh... All right. How does that sound? I'm still hearing myself in the background. I'll tell you what. Can you? We just use Google? I tell you what, let's just do the phone. Let's turn off the computer. We'll just do it by phone. Oh, okay. All right. We'll, we'll do it. So we're going to get into the. That's all right. So we're going to get into the economy here. And Morgan, I was saying that uh, a lot of the talking heads saying that the United States is in recovery. I'm guessing that you don't buy that either. Oh yeah, there, there. It, it's uh, quite a distinction between. What David Stockman, the brilliant David Stockman, calls the bicoastal elites, the, the uh, less than the upper one percent, versus flyover America. Right. I mean, the, the Donald Trump uh, phenom is explained by uh, the 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 whole downturn of uh, 07 through 09, and then the, uh, the the sluggish economy ever since. Now, Were you there? Yes, we're here. A lot of, yes, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. A lot of Trump's success in the Rust Belt right now uh, I think is attributable to he's hammering away at the Clinton legacy, which is sort of wrapped up in part by the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, and Trump maintains he's not anti-free trade, but he's he just wants fair trade. How much of of, of the economic uh, sort of the hollowing out of the Rust Belt can actually be attributed to free trade deals like NAFTA? I'd say uh, very little. The, the, the China price is very important. Okay, the manipulation uh, of the, the currency. The export of uh, a lot of capital to build plants in, in China, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the main culprit here is the Federal Reserve, the central bank. Right. The whole... Uh, you know, the most important thing, uh, uh, if we go back in history a, a bit further, was August 15, 1971, when the Republican president uh, at the time, Richard Nixon, cut the last link between the United States dollar and gold. Right, right. Basically because France said, hey, we got all this funny money, we'll take the gold, and they, uh, Nixon closed the gold window. 
Well, it took them a couple of decades, really, till Alan, Alan Greenspan got in charge of the Fed to learn how to really rock and roll. In other words, uh, make our money completely dishonest and, uh, you know, oceans of dollars. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the link, uh, the, although it was not a true gold standard uh, uh, prior to Nixon, it was a, a, still a constraint on uh, the, the Federal Reserve just going bonkers. And what the Fed, what Ben Bernanke, by the time we got to the 07, 08 crisis, he, uh, we had 200 plus years to get uh, to a balance sheet, the Federal Reserve balance sheet of $900 billion. And then we, within um, a few years, we went to $4.5 trillion. In other words, it's just unimaginable absurdity type thing. Now, and uh, here's the whole fallacy in uh, this Keynesian and monetarist uh, nonsense about uh, putting economic growth all in the barrel of we've got to inflate, inflate, inflate. That is complete nonsense. Uh, even Milton Friedman agreed that the optimal of, uh, amount of money, once it's money, is any amount. What is uh, damaging is great deflations in the amount of money or great inflations in the amount of money. So this it's just completely disastrous. And uh, since I spent my career, my, most of my adult career at uh, Texas A&M University, and I'm proud of that, uh, what we've got in charge, though, are, are Ivy League economists who – uh, I think they can talk faster than I can think, but that doesn't make them any good as economists. Right. And they're in charge. They are, uh, you know, they are, are apparatchiks. Uh, they're they're uh, like a central planning board. It's it's absolutely absurd how the mission creep has uh, vaulted into mission leap. They've done everything wrong. The interventionism uh, in in the U.S. domestic economy is rather similar to the interventionist uh, mission creep of the U.S. overseas, where it's empire, 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 you know, dominance, dominance, dominance. And there's no legitimacy to either one. The the idea that capitalism is always ready to uh, fall asleep or uh, fall over the cliff and it's got to be stimulated, stimulated, stimulated is is absolute bunk. So uh, and, you know, what's really kind of funny is that all these uh, quasi socialist and interventionists kind of concede that the only real true mechanism to uh, increase or grow output is savings, investment, uh, entrepreneurs, scientists, and engineers to make, you know, raise productivity and output and in, uh, increase the standard of living. Over All right, time. Morgan, i got to jump in here. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back. Morgan Reynolds, as we discussed boom and bust cycles and the manipulation of the Federal Reserve and the possibility we're heading for a catastrophic collapse, economically speaking. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Uh, stay tuned. At the bottom of the hour, our re resident remote viewer, Albert Vinzel, will attempt to determine what's in the box. Right now, Morgan Reynolds stays with us, uh, the, um, the professor of uh, economics emeritus at Texas A&M University, also was the former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. And we're talking about boom and bust cycles and um, the Federal Reserve and its uh, manipulation uh, of the currency and of, the, of, of markets. Um, interesting. He mentioned uh, Nixon closing the gold window back in 1971. And, you know, there's an old saying that eventually all paper money reverts or fiat currency reverts back to its intrinsic value, which is exactly zero. Uh, and since 1971, I think the U.S. dollar has lost, what, what is it, uh, Morgan, about 97 percent of its uh, purchasing power? Well, that's since 1913. Ah, 13, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, the Fed, the, you know, they, in the uh, Christmas Eve, they sent the bill to Woodrow Wilson to, because uh, a, a European-style central bank wasn't popular, so they kind of snuck it by the public. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the Fed, it, uh, the irony of this is, is that the Fed was uh, allegedly created to uh, – control inflation to uh, you know halt inflation the the inherent tendency of banks you know to overdo it and extending credit was going to be controlled by the cent which is absurd <laughs> right right and since the inception of the, the empirical facts there and yeah. since the inception of the fed in 1913 how many how many crashes have we had oh man yeah uh I'd, I'd, uh, well, it would be near 20, I would imagine. In other words, it's kind of every four years, five years, certainly. Right. Yeah, that, that, it'd be a couple dozen. Now, it's interesting. And, and uh, of course, uh, a few of them have been whoppers. <clears throat> the most uh, notable was the Great Depression of the 1930s. And uh, you can always point to multiple causes. For example, the, uh, the, the trade uh, barrier wars, speaking of protectionism, where I'm, I'm not in harmony with uh, the Donald on that, uh, and and you know he he I, I kind of support the, the Donald Trump's campaign partly because he's a New Yorker and he's really funny, although he really was. <laughs> That's not quite a reason to vote for him, Morgan. <laughs> huh? That's hardly a reason to vote for him. He's funny and he's uh, from New York. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I like pol political theater, and this this year's presidential <laughs> contest is quite entertaining. But here's the real reason I would uh, I'm probably going to vote for him, and that is Hillary. I I I, I would describe as uh, pure evil, and in particular, I'm worried about a nuclear war because she scoffs at Putin. You know, they, they've been, uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union, treated like a, a, just a third world country. And hey, they're for serious, uh, you know, this is, you don't toy around with this and, uh, you know, extend NATO right to the border of Russia, et cetera. That's right. So the well, Donald says, hey, I can, you know, you can deal with uh, Putin, et cetera. Well, this so is interesting. Is less of a, of a war 
risk than Hillary. Absolutely. By far. This, you know, and this is lost on a lot of the millennials that uh, you know want it, that that Hillary says are living in their parents' basement. The millennials that that were supporting Bernie, they need to understand that when it comes to foreign policy, and when it, when it comes to trade, they have uh, Bernie has more in common with Donald than Hillary does. Uh, but the other thing, as you mentioned, with foreign policy, and that we weren't you know, necessarily going to spend a lot of time on this, but as you mentioned, the constant poking of the bear. And after, uh, after Gorbachev stepped down and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was an agreement between the United States and uh, the Soviet Union that NATO would not encroach one millimeter uh, towards Moscow. It should have been disbanded. Its purpose was gone. Right. So, and so, they, uh, you know, the, the poppy bush... Uh, pretty much agreed to it. You know, you disband uh, Warsaw, and we'll, although I don't think it was put quite in, in that black or white terms, but, and, and you know, the Donald uh, was disappointing to me, and, and uh, he, he bungled the, the debate to a certain extent, although I don't know how many minds were changed, but uh, he, he's, you know, just saying, oh, you know, NATO needs to be more efficient and turn to terrorism, and other people need to pay their fair share and all this. He had at one point talked about it being obsolete. Right, right. And here's the other thing. And we talk about uh, Clinton really being the the representative of the war party, which is both the Republicans and the Democrats. And and it comes down to this. Are we really prepared to go to war with Russia over some puny Baltic nation? Like if they decide to roll the tanks into Estonia, are we going to launch World War III over that? Because that's what the NATO agreement says. You know, the, uh, there's a book, I've got to tell you about this, uh, while we're on foreign policy, which uh, libertarians and uh, free market-minded people uh, need to pay attention to first, because uh, war is the biggest project of, this, of big government. And you, you've, you've, it's basically the Yankee problem, as a, a Southern historian put it. That's the title of his book, uh, by the name of Clyde Wilson. And as he says... Hey, you know, this goes back to the uh, kind of the, the, the Puritans and the New Englanders who were a problem. It wasn't uh, so much a Southern problem. And Hillary uh, Rodham, Rotten, Clinton is an uh, embodiment of this. Even though she was a Northern Methodist raised uh, in Chicago, she's a museum-quality specimen of the Yankee, which means you're self-righteous, ruthless, and self-aggrandizing. Here's a quote, i got to give you this, where, um, who was it, uh, Daniel Webster, back in the day, wrote in his diary. He's a New Englander, of course. Oh, New England, how superior are thy inhabitants in morals, literature, civility, and industry. <laughs> Just it's dripping, dripping with condescension. Yankee, yes. you know, that they won't allow the rest of the world to be independent. And, of course, their project is failing miserably. And that's part part of what uh, is disturbing flyover America. Right. Yeah. And this is why she can't run on her record and why, you know, nobody gets down in the gutter like the Clintons. And uh, she and if she's going to wallow there and she's going to drag Donald down there, then he, if he's not going to talk about the issues, she's certainly not going to talk about them because she she can't run on her record. However, let's get back to the Fed. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the purpose, is, as you mentioned, uh, ostensibly was to prevent these boom and bust cycles and to kind of even things out, which it has failed miserably to do. So talk to me about uh, the distortion in the market as a result of all of this. The, first, we had this quantitative easing, and now we have uh, you know, negative interest rates, which is basically flooding 
the market with free money. Uh, so there's no real recovery. We just have, you know, we have companies buying back their own stock, uh, but not really producing anything. Is, is well, my understanding it correctly? Mining corporate balance sheets, Richard. So it's even worse. Uh, in other words, net business investment isn't anywhere like a recovery. And if you don't have the net in, uh, business investment in uh, the 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 new technology, the new capital equipment. Your, guess what? Your productivity, your output per hour of labor isn't going to go up like it once did. And that's what we've got is, is a, a zero uh, productivity growth economy right now. But, but so, it's not, it's not there, just the United States. I mean, this is a worldwide problem. China is in the same boat. Japan. Uh, I mean, how, how big – I've heard these, these bubbles. We're talking about these uh, bubbles being in the quadrillions of dollars. Well, that, that's when they, uh, you know, a lot of that's notional uh, derivatives and uh, all these um, financial exotic instruments. And a lot of those are uh, net out to zero. So uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put any stock too much in that. But, you know, the real problem, here's the part of the uh, culprit, and that is we have hit peak debt. You know, you heard all this stuff about peak oil. You don't hear about that anymore because oil's, uh, going for U.S. $45 a barrel and probably is going to hit 35 again. So peak debt, though, is, is a big thing. You know, it's grown, you know, trillions. We count these debts uh, in trillions and as multiples of income. And, uh, you know, the households here in the U.S., you talked about uh, consumption spending. Well, consumption, you know, in, in the um, – Late 90s, uh, into the early 2000s, people were doing the mortgage equity withdrawal thing. Right, right. Well, so you can outspend your income, your your income, your disposable, kind of sustainable uh, disposable income. Well, but that's uh, what uh, David Stockman would call a one-time parlor trick. Because uh, that Keynesian stuff, you know, uh, stimulating it by increasing debt, you run out of room to increase debt any further. And then you got to do what uh, we might call uh, Say's Law. You got to aggregate demand equals aggregate supply, you know, and and supply or production has to precede consumption. Right, right. You know, right. Consumption only precedes production in the uh, dictionary, the alphabet. It's, it's <laughs> that's just, right. That's you know, right. Production is the source of wealth, not consumption. Exactly. I mean, I hate to sound like uh, Econ 101, but we're, we're being run. Government policy and the Fed in particular is being run on an upside and down theory. Now, let's take a look. You mentioned interest rates. And, you know, going negative on government bonds, government debt, because the, the Fed uh, is, owns, you know, about half of it now. And uh, more in some of these – Japan, it's 100 percent. In fact, they, they, they have – oh, we got to buy um, uh, the stock of, of, uh, that's being traded on the exchange. Well, that's socialism, folks. Out and right. out. Well, the, the Bank of Japan, the industry, the Bank you know, of Japan, the yeah, they own. I don't know what the latest figure is. Something like forty percent of the uh, the top, like basically Japan's version of the of the, the you know the, the New York Stock Exchange, or uh, they own you know almost a majority yeah. of the companies now. Some huge share of uh, Japanese companies. 
Now, now I want to go back to the interest rate, though, because that hits on a very important point. There's no problem with the interest rate being deter- determined by a free market. You got uh, billions of suppliers of credit, and especially in the form of real savings, people abstaining from current consumption to save. And then you've got uh, uh, lots of uh, borrowers, and the interest rate should be determined in the market. Now, when you, when you mess with it and falsify the interest rate by holding it artificially low, you're tampering with the time preference of, of people. I know this, is, this gets into a little uh, deeper um, theory, but the most important part, the most important price in the economy, and it's, it permeates everything, is the, uh, the rate of interest, okay? And they're, they're distorting. It's, uh, they're killing price discovery. They're uh, messing with the allocation of investments. They're, they're killing savers. I'm one of them because I'm a retiree, okay? I mean, they're stripping uh, retirees of, of income like $400 billion a year in, in the U.S. if we'd have normalized interest rates, okay? You can't earn anything, basically. Right. Oh, and right. Uh, you know, the 10 year government bond is like 1.4%, that kind of thing. So uh, the, the point is you're distorting prices. Now, here's why the guys on Wall Street, the speculators and punters and, the, you know, the front runners, the, 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 uh, the cool guys, they really uh, they go for this big time because they get free carry. You know, they, 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 get the, they get the first divs on the money. It's not Richard and Morgan who get uh, the money from, uh, you know, bailouts or uh, the, the Fed uh, uh, creation, created money. You know, somebody gets that first round. Right, right. And then who gets it toward the end is, is the lower class, the blue collars, the deplorables. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right. You know, this Hillary, I think she should uh, not have access to any deplorables when, when her, she gets a flat tire or uh, her air conditioning breaks down, or anything else, you know, that the deplorables who make this uh, economy run. One time, I can tell you, I, I motorcycled three t- different times in Mexico, and I'm, I got a flat tire on my gold wing, and my lovely wife is along. We had to wait four days to get a tire. They don't, like, I couldn't find a tire big enough, you know, a 180 rear. I had to get it from El Paso, Texas. <laughs> and then they botched the job. And by the time, you know, I'm willing to knock the uh, America as uh, well as the next guy and based on reality. But then when I got across the border in Texas, I about ready to kiss the ground because <laughs> you can right. still get stuff done here. That's right. That's right. Morgan Reynolds is uh, with us, and uh, he is a professor emeritus of economics at uh, Texas A&M University and a former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. Uh, we'll come back uh, and continue to talk about the uh, the Fed boom and bust cycles, the creation of a permanent underclass. Uh, Hillary's talking about tax increases, and Donald's talking about massive uh, tax cuts, but you know nobody's paying taxes. Period anymore. It seems like there's a creation of a permanent underclass, and uh, I think the uh, the establishment wants it to be just like that, precisely the creation of a permanent underclass. More and more people dependent on some sort of a, a check from the government. We'll uh, delve into that as well. 
nomoregames.net is the website. Morgan Reynolds stays with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Morgan Reynolds stays with us. Nomoregames.net is the website. Uh, Former um, chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor and a um, professor emeritus of economics at Texas A&M University. Uh, I, was, I wanted to talk to you about the creation of a, a permanent underclass, which I think is, is by design. And um, I think it was – well, it's been over 50 years since LBJ's Great Society. I think that was 1964. And, and since that time I read recently, since 1964, the United States government has spent $22 trillion dollars 22 trillion dollars in its war on poverty and after all is said and done morgan i mean has it has it changed anything other than you know created as i say a permanent underclass well if you, just to be fair about it uh, if you if you look at the poverty statistics uh, in the on the order of uh, 15% have been counted uh, as as below the poverty line uh, with some up and down with the business cycle but there's no progress and uh, if you if you look more carefully it, it's worse than it ever was because so much of the income down there is transfer payments and and now of course this this problem is exploding uh, there, fifty uh, percent of Americans are, are are on some kind of transfer payment, including me, <laughs> because I'm on Social Security. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, of course you can argue, well, I paid a lot of taxes there when I was working, and so on and so forth. But the point is, this uh, there, there now there's ten thousand people per day going on U.S. Social Security because uh, the, the 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 leading edge of the um, baby boom generation is is retiring, and uh, you know the the Donald talks about cutting taxes, which has been the Republican formula, and supposedly you can do this forever, based on the argument that Dick Cheney puts up, and namely that deficits don't matter. 
Yeah, they don't matter until they do. You know, when when you've run out of borrowing room and, you know, the, the, the central bank won't be there, I predict, to bail you out again and again and again because the central bank won't have any credibility. It'll probably uh, go the way of the dodo bird and 99% of the other species that ever occupied the, the planet. So the, the point is that uh, governments really do, not just uh, figuratively, but literally go bankrupt. In other words, there's a gigantic collapse. Now, I'm not saying this happens in 10 years, but it'll happen certainly within a century. You can't, and there's no fiscal rectitude anymore as there once was in the Republicans, right? Because of this, oh, we're getting away with it, we're getting away with it, we're getting away with it, it'll, we can get away with it forever. No, you won't. Well, the doomsayers are saying, you know, and we keep hearing this year in and year out, it's going to happen this year, a stock market. I mean, are you seeing any indicators that a crash might be imminent like we had in 2007? Oh, yeah. There there are a lot of uh, such indicators. Hey, you know, one of them was that Hanjin uh, Cargo, um, the biggest cargo uh, transport company in the world, you know, in South Korea. Right. They're, they're bankrupt uh, partly because the, the, these cargoes aren't there anymore. International trade is uh, nosediving, okay? Just, I mean, there's a lot of straws in the wind. Um, you know, the, the biggest really is that corporate earnings, you know, the S&P 500, right. keep on shrinking. And the, uh, the value of these companies in the uh, stock market is as high as ever. Right. It's basically... 25 times earnings, okay? You know, the price earnings ratio. Right, there's no 25 value. 25 times. So that means that you're really optimistic about how rapid these corporate earnings are going to, and they're shrinking. So the, 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 we're at absurd all time uh, levels if you do it honestly. Now, of course, they, they you know, they, they uh, lie about their earnings because it's, and, you know, the banks get to mark to malarkey, I call it, instead of marking their assets to a market value, on and on. So, uh, you know, one of my friends said to me, uh, hey, without honest money, there's no honest accounting either. Right. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a little truth there. Oh, absolutely. More than a little. Uh, Donald raised the um, the specter of the Fed during the uh, the debate, and I don't think since Rand Paul – uh, not Rand Paul, but his father, uh, Ron, Ron Paul. Paul. Ron Paul mentioned the Fed during his uh, uh, campaign. Yes. Has anyone really, you know, talked about the politicization of the of the Federal Reserve and and why how it's doing such oh, a that, lousy yeah, job? That, that that was stirred up lately, and of course the school marm Janet Yellen was testifying before a congressional committee, and of course uh, just oh we never talk politics when we're setting policy. Right, right. But I mean, you that's don't the... have to talk about it because, hey, the minutes or some kind of summation comes out a few weeks later. Right. We can talk about it in the corridors or whatever. But but when I mean, talking about the Fed uh, and and uh, or, you know, prior to the Fed, uh, central banks or or, um, you know, fiat money, that kind of talk can can get a, uh, a person killed. I mean, do you, is there? I mean, he is such a disruptor. Do you think, God forbid? Oh, I'm not oh wishing, you're talking about the Donald, huh? Yeah, I'm just wondering. I'm not. I'm not wishing ill on anyone. God forbid. But I'm just saying that kind of talk is dangerous. 
when you start when you start talking oh, about the Fed that way. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the the one that would be assassinated would be Donald Trump, especially if he made a couple moves like John F. Kennedy did. Mm-hmm. Right. Where, you know, he made a lot of enemies and he came in on a on a thin um, a vote. And uh, but he would have won uh, re-election overwhelmingly had he lived. But yes, um, you know, the, part of the problem is the Secret Service. So I'm I think this is a real concern. All right. Well, we'll talk. About, let's pick up on that point when we come back, uh, Morgan, because I think I know where you're going with that. The Secret Service and the relationship to the the Treasury and so forth. Uh, back with more of my conversation with. Professor of Economics Emeritus at Texas A&M, Morgan Reynolds, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Oh, and what's in the box? Coming up. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. Morgan Reynolds is with us, and uh, we were going to do the big reveal, what's in the box, but my remote viewer, uh, story producer Albert, has fled the studio. (laughs) He'll be back. Anyway, we'll we'll get to that when we get to it. Now, Morgan Reynolds, Professor Emeritus Economics, Texas A&M University, and uh, the website is nomoregames.net. I want to. Oh, we were talking about the Secret Service, and you you were saying that that uh, and the possibility that something untowards may happen to uh, to Trump. And um, I was trying to figure out where you were going there, because I know the Secret Service at one time when it was formed was sort of a branch of the U.S. Treasury, but that's no longer the case, right? Right. They, they moved them to Homeland Security, the gigantic uh, bureaucratic mess. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to point out that uh, there's something way wrong with the Secret Service, as we know, because of 9-11 in 2001, September 11. Even after the second hit of the World Trade Center tower, the the uh, Secret Service did not spirit the president away from his schedule. Right. Okay. Right. Completely contrary to uh, Secret Service practice. Absolutely. Okay. A day or two later, I'm talking with there was a, another person present plus Elaine Chow, the Secretary of Labor, and she's describing her morning. There's two Secret Service agents. Uh, trailing her around all the time, even though she's just a cabinet member. At any rate, she says, you know, they just about picked me up, uh, spirited me away to an undisclosed location. Boom! Now, you tell me that the president and the Secret Service and that at that... This is uh, oh, this is a dead giveaway. Right, an act and, well, of war. An act of, of war. Them. An act of war has just been committed, and the president uh, is right. on is on live television at, in a in a Florida classroom, in a kindergarten class on live TV, a sitting duck, a sitting duck. Yeah, they're telegraphing his that, location, and I mean, as you say, the Secret so many Service. Things wrong with this, mm. but uh, you know, the Donald, uh, you have to know who's uh, running the Secret Service. 
this was a complete uh, – this is outrageous. Mm. In a dead giveaway, something that's way wrong among all kinds of things way wrong about 9-11. Absolutely. Mm. Um, Are you a fan of uh, John Williams and Shadow Stats? Well, no, I don't buy into uh, some of the, you know, the, I'd say, exaggerated uh, measures of inflation or, uh, to some extent, unemployment. But you don't you believe know. that the unemployment rate is, is around 5%, do you? Right. Now, now, let me, I can actually, I worked with the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Now, I don't know what, how good they are now. But I was uh, when I was there in '01, '02. I was impressed with their professionalism. Okay, even though uh, the, the the Bush Cheney regime put in their own person that who wasn't as good as the preceding uh, one, you know, as the head of the uh, BLS. But in any case, you can criticize some of their outmoded uh, procedures about how expensive they are to run, et cetera. Back then, now today, it, it's probably more corrupt. The, the, the kind of the most outrageous thing that happened recently was they said median family income went up in real terms 5.2 percent this year. Well, 2015. Right. Now right. That's, you know, and uh, some of my good guys have taken that apart and exposed what, what a, a lie that is. So, you know, I'm, I'm here and there. Uh, you got to look at uh, all these individual cases. But, you know, the, the labor force participation rate right. continues to shrink. Right. You've That's got 97 the main thing, uh, giveaway that there aren't any uh, this abundance of good jobs. Yeah. Ninety seven. Is it 97 million Americans are not working? Yeah, that are prime age, like 18, what is it, 18 through 54 years right. old. Ninety seven million. Think about that. That's a third of the country. All yeah, right. the adult population is what, uh, like two forty something like that, two hundred forty right. million. Right. Yeah, it's it's alarming. Um, anyway, I I want to ask you then, how do we get out from under the? I mean, is is there any way out other than just there's going to be a you know a, a deflationary collapse? That's the only way to get out from under this debt. Uh, where do you see this? How do you see it playing out? Well, I, I don't think true reform can come until there is a, a, a real collapse and all these people are, and their ideas are discredited. And then maybe we have an opportunity to do the right thing. Now, that, that would mean all this interventionism has to start to be repealed. Now, here, uh, that means overseas and domestically. They're killing us both domestically and overseas, okay? And you, you, you think it's really a, a kind of an elitist plot. I, I, I don't know if I buy that, but uh, there's a lot of error built into this thing. But what you need to do is stop inflating money. Get rid of this. Well, you know, it's kind of the Ron Paul agenda. Right. There, in other and words, the that's how you need to do it, but you, you, we're not going to have enough political traction to get there until uh, people learn by immiseration. Right. And get back to real money. Would that real money include? Real money. Right. Honest money. Right. It's it's so obvious how important money and interest rates and credit policy are. And you're just feeding um, bad people with bad money. And it's just monstrous how it's... You know, we here's what I would say. 
what's really maddening to me is if I think back to when I was a student, undergraduate and graduate, and you learn uh, good economics, I mean, economics is a science. It's an it's not a physical science. It's a social science. But we've got it's the most advanced. There's a lot of uh, great knowledge that about the fundamentals here. That's what's maddening. And we could be doing things right. We did it kind of right for much of uh, U.S. history. But now it's wholly in the tank. It's all 180 degrees from sound policy. And do you think before uh, this ends that the, the Fed and uh, you know the, the European Central Bank, they're all going to kick the money presses into high gear one more time, one last effort to try and you know, push, the, push the string? You know, I'm wondering if it isn't a bit like uh, Obama was going to invade Syria because the the sarin gas and all that. Well, wait a minute. We don't even know who's who's responsible, right? You know, what turns out we pretty much agreed. Uh, it seems like the facts are that the Assad government didn't do it. Well, we got the same thing here. You know, I mean, on 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 economics, the. Uh, it it may be that one more collapse, one more bubble bursting, and bubbles inherently have to burst. And this one, a financial bubble, has to. Except and now we have more than one. We've got five or six. Look, uh, a little tea party gardenish. Right. Uh, then the Fed is going to go. They're going to have egg all over their face. And maybe some of these gutless characters in the Congress, the United States Congress, where they don't even protect their power against the executive branch. uh, Or, hey, when I was in Washington on the uh, Joint Economic Committee, Dick Armey, who was a a leading Republican in the House from North Texas, he had he was going to go meet with Alan Greenspan, you know, the great maestro. Right. I called him Mr. Magoo, though, because, hey, we, we got a resemblance in more ways than one. But isn't it funny, after uh, he, he left office, he became... He's a Ph.D. economist. He used to be a professor of economics at, at mm-hmm. the University of North Texas, and he was very worried about going to meet Greenspan. If I were in his shoes, <laughs> which I will never be, I'll run for office, but I would be calling him on the carpet right. and taking him to task intellectually. Right. Yes. Isn't it interesting when Green, Greenspan... Once- is is uh, you know just he's responsible for a lot of we uh, before him we had Paul Volcker which amazingly enough stopped a, a great inflation double digit interest rates and the like and certainly helped Ronald Reagan uh, to have a partly undeserved reputation for uh, the great Reagan recovery. Yeah, uh, Volcker administered some tough medicine, but it worked. It was tough medicine from Volcker, but it worked. And it yes. isn't interesting once Greenspan got out of that position at the Fed, all of a sudden he becomes bullish on gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he was a gold bug, you know, that that uh, uh, term of infamy, because it, it just basically, you know, uh, it's honest money. It's the choice of the people. They want honest money because they know they're in effect. They, they intuit, at least, that they're being ripped off otherwise. And it's just... Here I go again, maddening, maddening. Right. So 
you, we can't put a timeline on when the when the crash is going to happen. But I mean, all the pieces are there. Uh, we didn't learn any lessons from two thousand and seven, and now instead of just a subprime loan bubble, we've got six or seven bubbles. We've got credit d- uh, card d- bubbles. We've got student loan bubbles. We've got mm, right, uh, right. Student loans are uh, they're a wide default. It's one point three trillion dollars and growing rapidly. Auto loans are the subprime is up to thirty uh, percent now, and uh, you're going to get this great wave of used cars coming off lease, et cetera. I mean, they're they're feeding, uh, they're 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 eating into uh, future sales right now. You know, yeah. they're, they're, it's a perfect storm. It's a perfect storm, and we learn nothing from two thousand and seven. So who's ever uh, sitting in the Oval and Office? And then, you know, okay, yeah. if Hillary's in the, in the uh, White House, what's she going to do? She'll say, I'll t- I take full responsibility. What the heck is that? <laughs> a That's a worthless late. statement. That's right. You're That's not right. resigning, or uh, nobody else is resigning. You sound like the 9-11 Commission. It wasn't our purpose to find blame. Yeah, you didn't. Right. Right. Well, just like uh, with her statement on Iraq. Well, well, we'll 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 learn from our mistakes next time. Yeah, as if. As <laughs> what, if. in Libya? Right. In Gazi? Right. Come and then, on. They have uh, Look at, you know, Richard, the US government has the reason they can't win a war, quote unquote, no matter who with whom they started is they they have no legitimacy. You, they, what, they've forgotten about goodwill and, uh, you know, what is real power or influence they with keep other pick, people. Yeah, they keep picking the wrong side. They're on the wrong side. They uh, are. They, uh, Morgan, I we, mean, they, they, they've taken, you know, Mao Zedong's uh, comment about political uh, power comes out of the mouth of a gun, barrel of a gun. I mean, it's just that's it's just naive. Morgan, we're going to have to have you on again. Uh, we'll do it in November next month. Are you good for that? So much to talk about. I would about. be delighted. All right. Morgan Reynolds, nomoregames.net. Always a pleasure, Morgan. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, before we get to the top of the hour, Albert, my remote viewing friend, I was trying to, uh, I was trying to get a hold of you, but you dashed out of I know you're busy. But, uh, <laughs> right. okay, so turn the camera around. Let people on the, uh, the live stream see our fancy cigar box. And, Albert, our remote viewer, What's in the box, Albert? Okay, the whole thing may just be AOL guessing, but uh, just read it. I know it works for sure once you're in the zone, but here's what I got. NHL, hockey puck, black sports, shape, heart, triangle, color, yellow, submarine, playing playing card, uh, moth, something that flies, yellow, triangle, rocket. Okay, well, there's a number of guesses there, but if you had to narrow it down to one, what are you going to go with? I, I, give me I felt, a color. Give me a, a, a. I felt good about yellow. Okay, all right. And a shape triangle, so yellow black. All right, open up the box, Albert. Let's see what's in there. Should be in the front. There you go. What do we have? Pull it out. Put it up on the counter. Let people see it. There you go. It's a child's uh, toy. It's a wooden milk truck. <laughs> well, you had the yellow part kind of right. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. Next week, we'll try again. Good job, Albert. Thank you. It's okay, tough. Thanks. A lot of pressure on you. Yeah. <laughs> there are literally dozens of people watching. <laughs> All right. We will be back. Uh, as always, get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, and follow the truth.
listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thank you for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, your parents' basement, loft, taxi, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. 50,000 watts of peace and love and one of the largest broadcast footprints in North America. Hi to all of you catch, catching us on the uh, the HOA, the Hangout on Air. And incidentally, you just uh, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and go to the top of the feed. Click on the uh, tweet with the HOA link and you're in. And uh, a special hello to those uh, of you listening in to one of the podcasts, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes, uh, TalkZone.com, those of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, and of course, on one of uh, our two, two terrific apps, two of the best radio apps anywhere, I, uh, believe me, uh, the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, which are both free downloads. So however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, Thomas J. Colbert is uh, standing by. He and his uh, cold case team may have cracked a very cold case indeed. Do you remember the name D.B. Cooper? This was the skyjacker who jumped out of a jet with a parachute and $200,000 in ransom money uh, back in 1971, never to be heard from again and presumed dead. Well, not so fast, says my guest, and we'll get to that full story in minutes. Um, now, let me see. Oh, I, I mentioned how to, uh, to stream us on YouTube, the HOA. Uh, oh, take a walk on the dark side. It's fast approaching. Take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. That's my next live event, uh, Saturday, October the 15th. Just a couple of weeks left to get tickets, and I'll be presenting rock historian, best-selling author R. Gary Patterson live on stage and uh, several special guests via Skype to relate some incredible and never-before-heard stories. It's sort of like rock and roll meets the Twilight Zone. Uh, for more information and to purchase tickets, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Live events page, strangeplanet.ca. Uh, next week on the program, just a reminder, Stanton Friedman, the godfather, the grandfather, if you will, of ufology, and his co-author Kathleen Marden will be along to talk about fact fiction and UFOs, their new book. And our resident paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, will also be with us. All right. 
let's talk D.B. Cooper. In 1971, a skyjacker with a briefcase bomb demanded a $200,000 ransom and a parachute. Then he vanished out the jet's back door and became an instant legend. Now, a determined citizen sleuth has assembled a 40-member cold case team, spearheaded by former FBI agents to solve the mystery of D.B. Cooper. And after a five-year quest, they believe they've succeeded with a fugitive at Trail's End. Thomas Colbert worked in numerous story development roles at the CBS News-owned and operated Los Angeles station, KCBS, and Paramount Television. He eventually created his own National True Story Research Service, which was credited with discovering 19 movies for the big and small screen, and he is the the co-author of The Last Master Outlaw, how he outfoxed the FBI six times, but not a cold case team. Thomas, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great, Richard. And I might mention to you, I pronounce it the French-Canadian Colbert. Way, Steve Colbert. All right. Thank you for that. Thomas Colbert. Wonderful. Now, um, let's. for those not familiar with the D.B. Cooper case, and I sort of gave just a very uh, quick th- sort of thumbnail sketch, uh, because, my Lord, we are going back f- nearly half a century now, 45 years ago. Uh, and this was the age, I remember, you know, this period of time, there were, there were just hijackings, it seemed like, every week going on in the United States. Uh, just give us a bit of the backstory of, of, of how, uh, who D.B. Cooper was thought to be, how he ended up on that plane, uh, and, and uh, just sort of walk us through the, the initial uh, parts of this story. Sure. The, uh, you mentioned how many hijackings. There were close to anywhere between 160, 200. I can't remember the exact figure. Between 68 and 72, it was a massive period of hijacking. But this was the first one not going to Cuba, not going to Russia, not planning to meet a boyfriend somewhere. This was for cash. And uh, this was a very sophisticated job, and it involved an amount of money that a paratrooper could actually carry without jeopardizing his flight, meaning his glide pattern. And that's what the FBI, FBI determined. Uh, he could carry 22-some-odd pounds of money. Uh, nobody expected it. Uh, in fact, this was a time when you could walk on a plane with a cigarette and a briefcase. Nobody would check it out. Uh, you could smoke. Uh, it, it was a different time. And he took advantage of that and sat himself in the back seat so he could monitor everyone. And the passengers were not told of his briefcase bomb. This man had what he claimed to be a bomb in his briefcase on a short flight between Portland to Seattle, and only the stewardesses, and that's what they still insist being called, I've befriended all three of them, (laughs) stewardesses and the uh, pilot crew were aware. Everyone else was told it was an engine problem. Very interesting, so they kept it inside. Right. Now, how did did the name D.B. Cooper come to our attention? Why that name? He signed his name on a boarding pass, Dan Cooper. And when they went looking for this guy after he vanished, uh, the authorities uh, at first thought, well, maybe the bad guy used his own name. So let's start looking up Coopers. (laughs) And they went into police stations and they went into newsrooms and, and a reporter, depending who you believe, an AP or UPI, they're competitive even for this claim, One of them overheard someone saying, well, which one are we seeing next? Let's go see D.B. Cooper. And the name stuck. Ah, 
And again, those are the days when you didn't have to have all the identification, photo ID, in order to get on a plane. That's right. You could just walk on. So at, at some point, the, um, the $200,000 in ransom is delivered, and the passengers uh, get off, and then he flies off again, supposedly en route to, to Mexico, with just him and the crew. Don't forget the parachutes. Right, right, yes. He asked for parachutes as well. Change. He, he let the pas- passengers go for four, pas- uh, four parachutes, and that was brilliant when you think about it, because obviously uh, he was probably worried they were going to give him dummy chutes. So by insisting on four, they were left to believe he might be taken a hostage. So they couldn't uh, dummy him up. That is brilliant. That is very brilliant when you think about it. Right. And then uh, he, he, he goes to the back and, and, uh, and, and jumps out. Now where are we at, 30,000 feet? How, how, how high up are we at this point? Uh, it's t- about 10,000 10, feet is okay. what uh, the height was, yeah. 10,000 feet. All right. And... Uh, in the aftermath, I mean, do they find a parachute? Uh, did they, what did they find? They found nothing. Now, they did massive searches. First of all, um, this was Thanksgiving weekend, a long weekend, and he jumped on Thanksgiving Eve. Uh, I think that was a plan. Uh, his, he obviously knew that uh, some of the more senior law enforcement may be off or away from the job, and it would take time. There, it was an 11-hour period between the time he jumped and the first searches began. Yeah, that's a lot of time. That's a lot. That's a half a day. Uh, you can put a lot of uh, mileage uh, between you and the authorities in 11 hours, even on foot. Yeah, and he also did something else that was brilliant. Uh, he insisted uh, that he left it to the crew. You decide which route you want to go south. I just want to go to Mexico. Well. D.B. Cooper had aviation background that was determined by uh, studying his uh, statements to the stewardesses and statements to the uh, crew over the uh, phone in the plane. Um, And he did not designate a route south. Well, he was smart enough to know, and we believe our Cooper suspect was up there for four to five months studying the routes of the aircraft. He is a uh, paratrooper, uh, pilot, both fixed wing and helicopter, uh, very knowledgeable, and apparently even had uh, uh, halo jumping, high altitude, low opening, something that was taught to the special forces in Vietnam. And our suspect had training with the special forces and CIA in Vietnam, off the books missions with them. And this so is here some- is a man who says, I don't care which route you go. Uh, as long as I get to New Mexico, and he knew there were only two routes. One was over the ocean, and one was a vector flight right over Portland. That was strategic. Without saying which one, the FBI couldn't plant cars and agents at highways. They didn't know which route the aircraft was going to go. They couldn't be there in time. And they couldn't track it with a transponder? Not at that time. They didn't really have them at that period. Okay. But why would he risk them deciding to fly over the ocean? He can't bail out over the ocean, can he? Well, he knew by flying at 200 miles an hour at 10,000 feet, that wouldn't be an option. Uh, In fact, when the crew, they wanted to go over the ocean, but Sacramento, California, where the headquarters for FAA was, overruled them and said, no, you go down and uh, the approach through Portland, because they were worried in an aircraft flying that low and slow, wonder if they had a problem. They're in the drink. So he must have known that, although he gave them the choice, he must have known the route they were going to take. Exactly. It was brilliant. 
And he studied that route. He was up there for four to five months. We believe he told, we have witnesses, 14 witnesses in two towns where he lived under an alias. One of his 21 aliases we have found in his 45 years. He lived there for four to five months. You'll love this. As a Swiss baron, walking America. <laughs> Norman de Winter was his name. Now, the reason we know his name, not only do we have older witnesses that are my age, former boomers now, uh, he was in the town, those two towns as a Swiss baron, and he was staying with the most affluent families. He was the guest at a ball in Astoria, the Admiral's Ball. Uh, they all bought it. And we not only have witnesses, in the last month, Richard, we found two old articles that the historian paper didn't even know they had. None of the former journalists are alive. And it was a pack rat. Our 13th and 14th members, witnesses, found the articles that they had saved documenting everything about Normandy winter's stay in town. Thomas Colbert is uh, my guest, the co-author of The Last Master Outlaw, How He Outfoxed the FBI Six Times But Not a Cold Case Team. And the he in this story is the legendary D.B. Cooper, who jumped out of the back of a jet in 1971 with $200,000 in ransom and a parachute never to be heard from again, perhaps until now. Back with more on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Thomas J. Colbert stays with us. He, the co author of The Last Master Outlaw How He Outfoxed the FBI Six Times, but not a cold case team. We're talking about the legendary D.B. Cooper, who jumped out of the back of a jet with $200,000 in ransom money and a parachute back in 1971 over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen from again. 
uh, or heard from again, rather, uh, uh, perhaps until now. And uh, uh, Thomas, uh, before we get into how you and how and why and when uh, you uh, assembled this cold case team, you know, the um, I'm just barely old enough to remember the D.B. Cooper, and uh, uh, but there was. It was almost like, you know, after Elvis died, there were all these Elvis sightings and, and uh, the media was just so transfixed by the Elvis could be alive story and there were, you know, Geraldo built a career on that and so forth. But there was sort of a similar thing with D.B. Cooper and, and as a former newsman at, at, um, in, in L.A., I mean, were you receiving like tips and your colleagues, all these tips about D.B. Cooper? Yeah, I was the senior researcher at the CBS station in Los Angeles. And, uh, yeah, probably every few months we'd get a call or we'd get a stack of court documents sent to us. Uh, those were never easy calls to hang up. I'm sure you can appreciate that, Richard, sure. Richard when sure. they come in. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, everybody thinks they know who it is. It, I always – it basically boiled down to people were enamored and, and uh, in love with the ideal of fame, uh, idea of fame and fortune – uh, but they were always hard hang-ups. And, uh, I mean, you, you're right. People became enamored with him, too. I mean, he, he became kind of a, a Robin Hood in many people's minds. Uh, and when you think about the ingenuity, I mean, something like that could never happen again with what with GPS and post-9-11, all of the security and so forth. Is that why you called him the last master outlaw? Well, it was kind of, you've kind of touched on both reasons. Number one, uh, they referred to him as a Robin Hood well, cops always corrected me when I said that. They'd say, you're mispronouncing it's robbing hood. <laughs> right. And the bottom line is, is that Master Outlaw was another name for the actual uh, character Robin Hood. Back ah. in the days in London, three to 400 years ago in, in England, in the forests, the heads of the gangs were called uh, Master Outlaws, and they literally crowned them like kings. That's what Robin Hood was, and that's a synonym used in his book. I use, and I use the term Robin Hood because, as you pointed out, uh, some of the, uh, the uh, hippies back then and even some professors and sociologists called him a Robin Hood. Uh, <laughs> Robin Hood. And, and he never returned any money to anybody, but they, the, the, uh, the uh, title stuck. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it really was the end of an era. This is, as you pointed out, before CSI, before crime banks, before uh, cameras in, in, in stores, you literally could vanish. And he really is the last outlaw of the Old West when you think about it. Right. Uh, it was, uh, you remember the movie uh, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? That oh, yes. The end yes. Of era. That Came was, around the same time, about that same time. <laughs> uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the actual characters, the real people portrayed in the movie, was the late 1800s, and they commented, who are those guys following us? That was when banks decided to hire their own security people to track bad guys. That ended that outlaw era. The Pinkerton men. Right. And then came the, uh, the Butch Cass, I'm sorry, the uh, Bonnie and Clyde, the, the gangsters. Well, the FBI threw in logistics and statistics and started tracking those guys down. That ended that era. This was the last person before, last bad guy before modern tools came in. Did you have a bit kind of a grudging admiration for him back then? Well, I may have as a teenager. I was just going into high school uh, when it happened. I remember the, my dad at the, the dining room table showing me the front page and hearing about him and 
like Dillinger and all those were my dad's bad guy heroes. I guess I sort of looked at uh, D.B. Cooper as, as my outlaw, you know, that uh, kind of quietly rooting for him. Right. Uh, I became a newsman. I dealt with a lot of uh, uh, good guys and bad guys. And then I became, I was recruited by the state of California to become uh, a police, fire, and military trainer uh, in crisis management. Uh, it was at a time in the business when everyone said no comment. Uh, uh, when it came to the media showing up in an, at a crime scene. Uh, we, in the 80s, uh, they recruited news people to help train police chiefs and media people to unfold their arms and, and talk. And that's what I uh, did, and I taught for 18 years at Camp San Luis in California. And because of that, uh, and I will also say I uh, uh, feel I have a strong sense of justice, just like my wife, and we have been supporters of law enforcement ever since. In terms of the official investigation into the D.B. Cooper case, when did it sort of peter out and, and it became essentially, well, they didn't officially close the file, I guess, but when did they basically say, that's it, we, you know, no mas, we give up? Well, I would tell you that um, they stopped showing um, pictures to the three stewardesses and a passenger, and we'll talk about him later, uh, Bill Mitchell, a passenger in the jet. Those were the key witnesses. They really stopped uh, visiting them, and they were showing them 10 photos at a time, sometimes every week. Then it went down to a month, every month. Then it went down to four or five times a year. I would say about 74, 73, 74 is when that big rush was uh, closing down. But they, op- they had a task force, uh, both uh, online and offline, uh, looking at this case, and that continued all these years. All right. So then, when did you become involved in the case, and, and, and what were the circumstances that, that got you assembling this cold case team? I got approached by a cameraman I've known for 20 years in Vegas, and he tips me two to three times a year, um, in, and he's been involved in some of my movie projects and breaking stories over the years, and he called me and said, I've got a guy here, and he has a little network of uh, casinos, that sources that tip him. He said, I've got a guy here who had to get something off his chest. And I sat him down. He claims to have uh, uh, known Cooper. And I'm like rolling my eyes like everybody that hears that story. Right, here we go again. Yes. Uh, but then he said something that I had heard from law enforcement in training classes for years. And that is, he brought up But this guy says he witnessed the planting of the money on the Columbia River in 1980. Now, I would tell you that's when I grabbed my steno pad because I'd been hearing from law enforcement for years. No one believed that that money just happened to wash up on the shore and sit there for seven years and bury itself, and it happened to still have the rubber bands on top. Right. Uh, They just never bought that story from the couple and their son. Uh, the son was only eight years old, so I believe that they just didn't trust the couple. And this was a small portion of the ransom. It was about $5,000. $5,800, to right. be exact. Okay. And uh, it was uh, found only uh, two to three inches down uh, on a beach, uh, and it just didn't make sense. Uh, there was a fisherman who fished there for 10 years every day. The only day he missed, he said, when he... Posed to Santa Claus. He had a long beard every Christmas. 
And he said, there's no way that money washed up shore. I was there every day. And then the farmers that owned the land would take their cattle out every two weeks to water. They said the same thing to the FBI. That, that money couldn't have been sitting there more than a week. So, um, but the FBI announced at the microphones, well, it appears that Cooper could have drowned. In other words, they went with the attitude that uh, he drowned, the money came out of his back backpack and, and washed ashore. Washed up shore, as you point out. Washed up shore. <laughs> and his bones must be out there somewhere. Right, right. That was the philosophy they took. Well, that's what I was left with. One source who happened to be a drug dealer. Uh, he was working for a cocaine, a Colombian cocaine dealer in Portland. Uh, and he was retired, about to become a, a grandfather. Uh, he was in the cocaine trade for 15 years in the 70s. Um, about, and uh, then he moved on to other things, but all these years later, he wanted to get that off his chest. So Richard sent me the tape. I looked at it, and I called this man, and I spent the next eight months looking into his drug dealer. Uh, first thing we found out is the drug dealer had died mysteriously within a year. Uh, one car accident on a lonely road outside Portland. Um, then I said, well, we need other sources, and he brought me two other drug dealers. Uh, <laughs> the middleman for the drug dealer himself and uh, our source's drug runner, partner. Uh, our source and his partner were ones that ran to Phoenix back and forth on cocaine runs. Well, they were at this party uh, at working, I should say, in Portland, and uh, their drug dealer one day asked them to come sit in the back of his Bentley. He was uh, had a chauffeured Bentley. I mean, this was when cocaine just had hit. Cops weren't very organized. They didn't know the danger of cocaine. They hadn't even uh, set up task forces yet. And so this was a time of exploration when it came to the cocaine trade. And so they were openly out in their, you know, their chauffeur-driven Bentley. And here is this drug dealer. His name was Dick Briggs. And he tells our guy, Ron, and his partner, he's thanking them for two years of work. And then he says, I want you guys to know I'm D.B. Cooper. Mm -hmm. Well, both of these guys didn't buy it. He was shorter than the sketches they'd been seeing. And this, by the way, he sat them in the back of the car in 1979. So it's eight years eight later. Eight years later, right. And he says, I was Cooper. And these two guys, you know, everybody claimed they were Cooper for the last decade in Portland. And he didn't look anything like the, the sketch. He was shorter. He was stocky. He was a weight builder. And uh, they didn't buy it. Well, for a whole year, he tried to convince them. He even took one of them to the annual D.B. Cooper party that goes on in Washington State every year at, at a bar, and he put on a I'm a D.B. Cooper shirt, and he said, boy, I wish I could tell these people who I am. And again, the, the drug traffickers, well, yeah, sure, boss, was the attitude they had. And at the end of the year, uh, three or four days before the money was found, this drug dealer is at a party with these guys, and they said, come here, come here. Now, I know you guys don't believe I'm Cooper, but I'm going to prove it to you. You see that couple over there? And he pointed out what our drug runner said was the couple that found it. Uh, you see that couple over there? They and their son, and then he stepped to the window of this apartment building on the Columbia River, and he said, you see on the North Shore over there? In four days, they're going to find my money. And they knew exactly what he meant. And again, they said, sure, boss, sure. They thought he had lost him. 
And so they headed off on a drug run, and they stop in Reno. They're at a hotel at 10 o'clock at night, three days, four days later. And Ron is taking a shower. He's come out. The TV's on. And there is the couple, Ron says, with their boy on that Tuesday explaining how they fund the money on the North Shore. Right. And Mm. Ron and his partner decided they were, you know, they had an honor code, even in the drug trade. We're not going to say anything. And they kept it quiet for 40 years until that day in the casino when my cameraman got the story of his life. Now, why would they, the police, the investigators, make the association between that money found and D.B. Cooper? I mean, were there serial numbers on the, on the bills? Yes, and thank you for mentioning that. Every one of them had serial numbers. Uh, while Cooper, uh, there's some disagreement if he insisted on $20 bills or not, but what the FBI did do, they tried to keep them all out of the mint in San Francisco, I believe, so they had certain stamps, and, and, and they all tried to keep them in the year 1969, if I remember correctly. But that's all they did. There was no sequence of orders. He wanted them all mixed up, so, and so they gave him huge stacks. Uh, this money was, had been set aside by a bank, not for this particular hijack, but in case the authorities and in uh, Seattle needed money quickly. The money had been set aside, so they wound up taking photos of the money and they wrapped it up and gave it back to him. So the, 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 the serial numbers on the bills found by this family on the Columbia River in 1989, years after the uh, hijacking, they did match. Exactly, so, they matched. All right, and the... Um, the, the people, do we know, was it D.B. Cooper himself or the, this, this drug runner who claimed that he planted the money or did he get his, his employees, his drug running pals to do it or how did that money get planted? Well, we believe it had to do with the actual copy, the couple themselves. We believe Mr. Briggs was working with them. Um, let me just tell you how I got there. Uh, after realizing that uh, there was something here when he mentioned this story, as I said, I spent eight months looking into this, and we did track down two other drug runners, and we did interview them. We interviewed our first source with the leading former FBI polygrapher in the country, and he's one of the most famous in the world, Jack Tremarco. And he has now done documentaries on Dr. Phil, a show out here in, in Los Angeles, and I recruited him to give this drug runner a test, and he passed. And so we moved forward with that and started calling Dick Briggs' family and associates to find out, could this drug dealer uh, Ben D.B. Cooper, as these two men were told? All right, Thomas, we are coming up on a, a break here. Thomas Colbert, co-author, The Last Master Outlaw, how he outfoxed the FBI six times, but not a cold case team. The legendary D.B. Cooper case solved, perhaps. When we come back, we have to find out Why, nine years after he disappeared over uh, in the uh, the rainforest of the Pacific Northwest, why did he wait nine years to plant that money? What was going on? We'll get to that when my conversation with Thomas resumes. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Thomas Colbert is with us, co-author of The Last Master Outlaw, how he, D.B. Cooper, outfoxed the FBI six times but not a cold case team. Uh, now, before we get to the cold case team, I've got to ask you one more question, and that is why does Dick Riggs this drug dealer in Portland who claims to be D.B. Cooper, why does he, eight years after the, the hijacking, decide then uh, to, uh, to, to bury this money to make it look like he drowned in the Columbia River? Well, it turned out there was a crime partner he did it for. Now, I didn't know that, and the drug runners didn't even know it. They truly believed their drug dealer, who had the Cooper money, was Cooper. That's all they could think of. But I spent eight months... And not only did we find out that Dick Briggs was just a party boy, I wasn't asking old friends from grammar school and high school, hey, could he have been Cooper? I was saying, could he have taken down a train? Could he have robbed a bank? And they said, no, he wasn't that smart. And I phoned his final friend, a frat brother, Pudgy Hunt, well-known basketball player in high school and college in Oregon with all sorts of records and a bar owner. And I called him, and it was his best friend. And Pudgy said, when I asked him, I was honest. I said, Pudgy, they're saying uh, former drug runners that you know ran with him were saying that he was Cooper. And he laughed and he said, there's no way he was Cooper. In fact, I think he was in my bar that day. Well, my shoulders just went right down. But then Pudgy said, but you know, I did interest, uh, introduce Dick Briggs to a former Vietnam vet. In fact, he used to be a D.B. Cooper suspect. It was on a floor job. We were laying a floor in California, and he went to work for him. His name was Robert W. Rackstraw. Now, I had heard that name. He was blown off because he was a Californian, yes, a Vietnam vet, but uh, he was just ignored. And I looked into this man who was cleared by the FBI in 1979, coincidentally, he was facing local charges in California at the same time that money was found on the shore. In between trials and bail, this man escaped not once, but three times by plane, and once, I'm going to argue, by river. He had, in one of his escapes, rode a motorcycle all the way up to Portland to meet with Dick Briggs. This was 14 months before the money was found on the shore. He had jumped bail, and a witness 
who happened to be the drug dealer's own son, who was 13 at the time, watching from a window in their house. He identified Mr. Rackstraw meeting his father on the driveway. In fact, he went down to introduce himself. And that's how he met Mr. Rackstraw 14 months before. It's our argument that we believe this was one of five meetings between Dick Briggs and Mr. Rackstraw, and this was one to plant the money. Now, as I suggested earlier, Mr. Rackstraw had some trials to get through. He didn't expect a lot of time. In fact, he only got sentenced to two years in July of 79. He was out in a year, but during that year, the money was found on the shore, and the FBI announced, well, apparently, it looks like Cooper drowned. They were suspecting Mr. Rackstraw was Cooper. In fact, for that whole year during his escapes, the FBI were trying to interview him. They absolutely thought he could be Cooper. In fact, I've identified eight different FBI agents leaking to local press that Rackstraw was being looked at as Mr. D.B. Cooper. Well, he has a, he's an incredible con artist, and he talked his way out of it, but let me tell you, when that money was found on the shore, four months before he was out of jail, that was, uh, you might say, uh, a find worth dying for, because right. he was able to walk out under his own name. In other words, the authorities were getting close on ident- as a, uh, in identifying Rackstraw as D.B. Cooper, so he had to throw them off the trail and that's when he decided to, to bury the money on the shores of the Columbia River and that sealed the deal for the authorities. He said, well, no, that's proof. This is not D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper drowned. Well, they spent the next year or two looking and digging and find, trying to find bones and more money and everything and they didn't find any more solid money. They didn't find the bones. But by that time, they had cleared Mr. Rackstraw and he uh, turned his life around. He uh, hit the books after he got out of year of jail, he got three college degrees. He became an expert in arbitration. He became a professor at UC Riverside in California. In fact, he became head of the law department for two of his 10 years. And now he's retired living in San Diego, but he's not fooling our team. Thomas Colbert is the co-author of The Last Master Outlaw, how he outfoxed the FBI six times, but not a cold case team. We're heading into another break. Uh, I want to talk about how this cold case team came together. Yep. Um, and, and it's spearheaded by a couple of former FBI agents who, uh, I guess, worked on the case. We'll, uh, we'll get into all of that and more when The Conspiracy Show returns in mere moments. Stay with us. is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Thomas J. Colbert, co-author The Last Master Outlaw, he and his uh, cold case team, hot on the trail of D.B. Cooper, alive and well, and uh, living under... Uh, well, is, it, is, it, was that, is that his real name, Rakshaw? Were you able to determine that, uh, Thomas? Robert W. Rackstraw, Rackstraw, Sr., I might add. All right. Because there's a junior, uh, there's a number one and number two that follow him. <laughs> a son and a grandson, Robert W. Rackstraw. All right. Tell me a little bit about the, the cold case team you put together. I want to mention first um, all these wonderful slides and pictures that you're putting up on the website and also online. Uh, please let your listeners know they can go to dbcooper.com. We actually own that website and they can read about all this incredible 102 pieces of evidence there. dbcooper.com. Correct. All right, thank you for that. So, um, As far as the cold case team, uh, we went to the FBI after finding this connection to the drug dealers and Mr. Rackstraw, and the FBI passed on our 33 pieces of evidence because it wasn't enough, obviously, to get involved, but they encouraged us to move forward. We eventually got an email from headquarters after we gave them several pieces of evidence, and they said, we will accept your evidence. So we decided to create a secret uh, elite team, uh, 40 members, and because of my connections to law enforcement and the media, I was able to assemble uh, a 40-member team, 23 of them are feds, 12 of them FBI, Uh, we have U.S. attorneys, we have uh, uh, U.S. marshals, customs heads, Uh, they've been fantastic. And they uh, helped identify Mr. Rackstraw's 45-year trail uh, in 21 American states, five countries including Canada, uh, where he used uh, almost two dozen different aliases and identities uh, and raised three families and while uh, living in six careers. I mean, this man is off-the-scale genius. And... <laughs> That is one reason the FBI, he ran circles around the FBI. And uh, what of his, his background uh, in Vietnam? Paratrooper? I mean, he sounds like, a, like an Audie Murphy-type character with a, a distinguished flying cross. I think he won three of those, or was awarded three of those. Uh, he had 50 medals. Uh, he had two flying crosses, silver, bronze, 37 air medals. Uh, he, was the co- he was the pilot for the general that led the Cambodian invasion. The generals wanted this man because he was a daredevil, a go-to-hell jumper, and an incredible pilot. Um, uh, So he he became everybody's favorite guy, one of the most uh, recognized men. But he had some problems, and that is when he wasn't flying, he was a rule breaker. He went out illegally with the special forces and uh, the CIA on missions, sometimes two or three days at a time. Uh, He was riding around in a stolen commander's jeep. Um, He he was a rule breaker. He was stockpiling weapons he shouldn't have. And finally, he lied about his rank and his education. This man turned out when they looked at him, and those lies are the ones that got him booted after seven years. 
this man not only didn't go to two colleges like he claimed, he was a high school dropout in the forests of California, uh, up in the Redwoods. He was self-taught. He learned everything in a library. And he lied his way through the military. So that's why they booted him. Despite his, uh, his valor. Correct. Yeah, it was a... Uh, It was a big decision, and it was five months before the jump that he came home to his family in Valley Springs, California, where he had a 24-year-old sister and his mom and dad in the general area. And his sister uh, described to us that he was uh, glum, he was angry, he wrote a letter to his commanders that the FBI later talked to the sister about. So you might say uh, Cooper was known to have told the stewardesses, I have a grudge. He was asked if he had a grudge, and he said, I don't have a grudge against your airline, I just have a grudge. Well, five months earlier, he told his sister he did, did have a grudge. He was angry at the military. Did you, did you uh, personally interview Rackstraw? We confronted Rackstraw. We tried for six months to get him to sit down, because he was arrested, as I told, I mean, he was suspected uh, in 1979, 78, but he was never charged as Cooper. So that was our entrance to reach out to him and say, look, we're doing a historical documentary on D.B. Cooper, which is what aired on History Channel. It covered a lot of different suspects. But we said, we want to interview you, and we want to talk about how you were wrongly arrested. That dance went on for six months. And finally, we confronted him. We went down with cameras, ambushed him at his boat shop uh, near where he had a boat at a yacht club. Poverty Sucks is the name of the boat. You'll see it on the photos that you have, and we confronted him. I had some former FBI armed with me for protection. We didn't know what we were facing. And you can go up on dbcooper.com and see about three minutes of the confrontation where he he puts his foot in his mouth a few times. And still, none of this is good enough for the FBI. That's the sad point. The FBI had been working with us quietly for three to four years. We had a letter from headquarters And when we were ready to turn in the 102 pieces of evidence with my team, they canceled the meeting the week before. And then they went on History Channel and announced the file was closed. A representative for the FBI, who was a liaison for History Channel, told us on camera, but it wasn't in the doc you saw or anyone saw, he announced that, well, they're afraid of a circumstantial case. They're worried that old witnesses and any type of evidence could be corrupted after 45 years. Well, we were aware of that, and that's why I brought in the best team ever. We have great DNA, we have great forensics, and we have incredible witnesses. But the FBI won't look at it, they closed the file, and that's why two weeks ago, with my attorneys, I stood in front of federal court in Washington and announced we were suing the FBI and the DOJ to reopen the case. Now, obviously, this book, The Last Master Outlaw, you know, is heavily lawyered because he's, oh, yeah. he's still out there, and, and you're accusing him of being D.B. Cooper. We know he's Cooper. I, I, I honestly can say that. After, first of all, this is the investigative report that my investigators and former FBI prepared for their protégés. I mean, these are some of their mentors that put this together. When they refused to receive this, we transferred it to this. And this has 47 pages of endnotes. The 
The writing was fun and difficult, but let me tell you, I'm going back to fiction after this. <laughs> I'll bet. Six weeks, 13-hour days, and we got it in, and not one libelous thing in it. We got immediate insurance, and online, you can find Rackstraw posting under Airborne Bob, which is what they called him in Vietnam. Right. Email is posted saying, he can't find an attorney. Nine times he's asked for attorneys. He can't get one. So he's been threatening for three years, but the FBI and Bob hate this book. And, and the FBI, it's, I guess it's a source of embarrassment because they had him six times and they let him off the hook. Six separate times. My favorite one is when he, he crashed, a, he was flying a pilot from Michigan to California for an owner, crashed in Idaho on a farm. Farmer ran out and he says to his co-pilot, don't say a word. And the sheriff shows up, the state police, and the FBI shows up. And Mr. Rackstraw talked himself out of that. That was only two and a half years after the jump. And I wrote in the book, uh, he convinced the FBI he wasn't the droid they were looking for. We just have a few moments uh, left. But share with us some of the DNA evidence. Because this is in the era before uh, DNA evidence. What what do you you have? Can you give us uh, one piece? The identity of Normandy Winter that he hid in the Northwest. Right. We have witnesses that have, he mailed them seven letters. We found a stamp from 1971 that has three alleles, partial DNA, that match a water bottle from a San Diego face-off we had with him with cameras. Uh-huh. An abandoned water bottle. We shared those three alleles, and we told the FBI, and again, they won't look at it. We also have, there's a quick Canadian angle to this. There were three letters mailed right after the hijacking from a D.B. Cooper. Ha, 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 you can't find me. You showed a letter with handwriting and numbers over it. That letter was written during the uh, Super Bowl of football that you had in Vancouver. Uh, He was there three days after the jump, and he wrote that letter. We compared that letter to uh, to the airline ticket, and a leading forensic expert says it appears to be the same man. So if you believe those four letters were mailed by Mr. Robert Rackstraw, first and last were mailed within miles of his home, then that puts him on the airline uh, ticket line. Indeed it does. Wow. And a lot. So what's, what's, the next, what's the next step then, Thomas? Well, the next step is we hear what the FBI wants to do. Frankly, I don't think they're going to reopen the case. Uh, I have a producer partner who is shooting in Vancouver as we speak. He and I are developing the answer to that, and that is we are designing a TV show, a TV show called The Trial of D.B. Cooper, and the jury will be the best jury in the land with social media. We're going to make it so that they can watch the trial, hear the evidence, and then the public will decide, is Mr. Rackstraw D.B. Cooper or not? And, I mean, was he or is he... Aside from, you know, being you know, confronted by you and, and uh, accused of being D.B. Cooper, I mean, it, is he a likable guy? He is uh, debonair. He is an uh, incredible con man. And he's a nice guy. And I'll be honest, that's, that's part of, you know, you always imagine a bad guy being a bad guy. This guy is charming. That's the, where, uh, the word we hear from all of his victims and witnesses. And frankly, it was six of his women. That turned him in. Right, right. Yes, he left a trail of broken hearts, I guess. Yes, he did. <laughs> and, and very quickly, we mentioned uh, the, the, the passenger, Bob Mitchell. Uh, 
did you ever go back to, to Bob Mitchell with a, a photograph of, of uh, Rackstraw? And, and uh, what happened with Mitchell? Bill Mitchell was the only passenger, and again, he didn't know about the hijacking, that we, the, all three stewardesses had traumatic memory loss. That's been documented. He did not because he didn't know about the trauma. He did not know what was going on. So we sat him down with a Portland sergeant on my cold case team with six pictures, and guess who he pointed at? Mr. Bob Rackstraw. Aha. There you go. Another piece of the puzzle. Thomas, uh, wow, congratulations. Um, Thanks, Richard. Amelia Earhart and Jimmy Hoffa. Do you want to take those ones on? No, I'm going for Bigfoot. (laughs) Bigfoot. Hey, I can't think of anyone better. Seriously. (laughs) Thomas, a pleasure. And uh, once again, congratulations on The Last Master Outlaw. You got it. We'll keep you updated. I appreciate it. Yes, let's, let's do that. God bless. God bless you. Thank you. All right. Wow. Another one solved. A couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we sort of got to the bottom of the whole Howard Hughes chapter in history. And uh, tonight, tonight, uh, D.B. Cooper. What's next? How are we going to top this one? I don't know. Anyway, uh, my thanks to Will Power and uh, Albert Vinzel. And uh, next week, as I mentioned, Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin will be along. And um, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, will do another paranormal news roundup. And we'll also do another edition of What's in the Box. Are you good for that, Albert? I hope you're not uh, discouraged. No, I'm, I'm good for it. Well, we were close. Play car, four wheels, truck. I mean, if, if you go back to the analysis, it's, it's sort of in there, in between the lines. Did you write that on your notes? I hold back sometimes, but... Stop doing that. Stop (laughs) holding back. All right. All right. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.